Amen. Good morning, church. Thanks, uh, thanks, team, for leading us in worship. It's been a great morning together already. Amen. Amen. Well, if I haven't met you, my name is Jordan. I'm youth director here at Harvest and uh, have the privilege of opening up God's Word with us this morning. Now, the time in God's Word that we're going to spend is going to look a little bit different uh, than we would normally have as we open up God's Word every week. Typically, we take a passage of Scripture, we work through it together, but this morning we're going to look at the scale and scope of Scripture uh, to pull out some chief and important doctrines for us because today is Reformation Day. And the reason that it is, is because on this day, 500 years ago, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther took his 95 theses, which were 95 statements of dispute against the Roman Catholic Church, and he nailed them to the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, um, we've got a picture up here uh, on the screen of of that. I think it's a real picture. Shout out to Pastor Roger for taking that uh, when he was there. (laughs) Forgive me, that wasn't in my notes. I shouldn't have said that, but... The nailing of theses or of statements to the door of a church was not unusual back in this time, in fact, and you can think about it kind of like a, an ancient style of Twitter, except less vile and with more Latin. And, and in this case, because although it wasn't so different, it was different in this case because God chose to use the 95 theses that Martin Luther posted to the door to change the church and to set ablaze what we now know as the Protestant Reformation. And to get a sense for what happened in the Protestant Reformation, you need, only need, you need only to look at the name by which the event is called. The essence of the word Protestant has the core word of protest. It was a protest against the way that the church was being run. It was a reforming of the deformed way that the church had sought to exist. God took his church from the darkness of a distortion of the truth to reforming back to the light of the foundation of the gospel. Now, why would we pause on this day to spend so much time on this? Well, it seems necessary to consider what God did so many years ago because we're in this series in the book of Acts as a church, and and even in the first century as the church was getting started, they faced threats to the truth of the gospel. And is it not true that That is most certainly the case today. The Church of Jesus Christ is meant to stand in this world as the pillar and buttress of truth, as 1 Timothy 3 says. We are called to proclaim and protect the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world. And from the Reformation came five statements known as the five solas, which make up the core of what God sought to bring his church back to. And amidst the pressures of our culture and the darkness of this world, the need for us to stand on gospel centrality with doctrinal clarity is crucial. If the church is to continue on the path that God has laid out For us, we must do so holding firm to the truth of God's word, grounded and founded on the foundation that Jesus Christ laid that men and women throughout history have built upon. So this morning, we'll take some time to review those five things, those five solas, and take ourselves both both personally and corporately back to what a church founded on the gospel should be defined by. Before we dive into it, let me pray for us. Father, we come humbly this morning before you to ask that you would meet with us. God, we recognize that we are in deep need of a word from you this morning. 
God, we know that you are intimately and actively involved in the building of your church and the proclamation and the building up of your kingdom in this world. And God, we want to be a part of that. We want to see you move in incredible ways. We want to see people come to know you. We want to see people get baptized. We want to see more and better disciples of Jesus Christ. And that starts with us having a sure foundation on the truth. So God, we pray that you, by your word, would speak clearly and powerfully to us. That this would not just be something that we agree with corporately, but God, that this would be something that burns in the hearts of every person, both here and wherever they're watching online. That we would be the church, not just within these four walls, but in every area of our lives. So speak to us, Lord. And do the work you want to do for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as I mentioned this morning, we'll be using uh, multiple passages, multiple parts of scripture to formulate a foundation in terms of our doctrine as a church, what it is that we're built on. All of those verses will be available to you on the screen. They're also available to you at the sermon notes at hbc.info. And then on top of that, we've garnered a number of resources that you can utilize in your own study that hopefully comes from this. Again, all of those are available at the sermon notes at hbc.info. But here's what we're going after here this morning. A church founded on the gospel will be defined by this first, sola scriptura, that is Latin for scripture alone. And that is to say that, that the word of God, scripture, is our final authority. God's word stands as the ultimate source of truth and the standard by which we measure everything else in our lives. God's word ought to have the final say. And 2 Timothy 3.16 stands out clearly for us as Paul says in, in it, all scripture, notice that first, all scripture, both new and Old Testament alike. There is no jettisoning the Old Testament here in this church. All scripture, the 66 books that we hold in our hands, is breathed out by God and profitable. Profitable for reproof, that is rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And we affirm that here. That an almighty God used men with their backgrounds, their styles, their vocabulary, their personalities, being supernaturally led by the Holy Spirit to record his very words. And those words hold authority as the words of God, true and inerrant, that is, unable to be wrong in the original texts, as God himself is completely and entirely true in all that he is, says and does. Listen, the Bible does not conform to some outside standard of truth. The Bible is the truth itself. As Jesus Christ testified to in John 17, 17, as he prayed to the Father and said, your word is truth. The word of God ought to be the standard for truth in our lives, and especially in our postmodern world where everyone and everything proclaims there is no truth. It's not even that truth is relative to an individual anymore. There is no objective standard for truth. We can't even know it. We can be sure that the words that we hold in our hands are true, and we can test everything against what we read here. The very reason that Scripture is authoritative is, comes from the fact that God is the author, that he breathed these words out to be recorded, and to believe that these words aren't true or that some portion of them are not valuable or necessary or important, is to believe something incorrect about the God who inspired it. The Bible is complete. It is authoritative. The Bible is sufficient. It is enough for us. 
And I love what the words of the Westminster Confession of Faith declare. This was written in 1646. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced, that is, drawn out from Scripture. God's Word is our sufficient and final authority. It's important to note in saying that, that we are not saying that Scripture is the only authority. In fact, God's Word says oftentimes and in many ways that we are to submit to other authorities as established in His Word. Things like creeds and confessions of history give us great clarity and great benefit in our walk with Christ. There are other authorities that we as Christians are called to submit to. But Scripture remains our chief supreme and final authority, and the standard by which we ought to determine which authorities we ought to follow. You see, this declaration of Scripture alone really was the driving force behind the Reformation. Back before, men like Martin Luther, William Tyndale, and others were able to translate the Bible into the different languages of the day. The interpretation and application of the Word of God was left only to the priesthood and the church which is what gave way to many of the incorrect interpretations and applications that sparked the Reformation. Today, the Word of God in some portion has been translated into 3,415 different languages. We hold, many of you in your hands right now, the Word of God at your fingertips with the click of a button and thousands of different translations, commentaries, and Bible studies, and yet biblical attentiveness and literacy is dropping at an alarming rate. Most recent study on biblical engagement in Canada saw that evangelicals, which would be our tribe, interacting with the Bible at least once a week was less than half. Down 9% from the last time they measured those. With 36% of evangelicals saying they seldom or never read the Bible. With our culture jettisoning from biblical truth faster than we can keep up with, the church needs to be founded on the Word of God. And Christians need to take accountability for themselves to know how to read the Bible, to understand it, to commit to spending time in it, and to hold it as the ultimate authority in all matters of our lives, in the church and in our homes. I believe Psalm 19 speaks for itself in this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. These words can bring the dead to life. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Scripture provides all that we need for the work that God wants to do in us and through us. And by it, as we read in John chapter 5, 39, we can see as the scriptures bear witness to the person and work of Jesus Christ.
which is our second thing that the church founded on the gospel must be defined by, and that is solus Christus, Christ alone. Canadian theologian J.I. Packer once used the analogy of, of Christ being the central hub from which all theological spokes must come from. In order for the wheel to roll properly and not get bent out of shape, Christ must be at the center, and so it must be in our lives as well. As Christ alone is the object of our saving faith. And Jesus is at the center of all Christian theology and doctrine because he is at the center of God's saving plan for all creation. John chapter 1, we see magnificently detailed these remarkable truths about the person and work of Jesus. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, a name for Jesus. The Word was God, and the Word was with God. Christ the Son, part of the triune God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, was with the Father and the Spirit, reigning and ruling in eternity past, and was active in the work of creation. And then John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus stepped into His creation, took on flesh. The infinite became finite, fullness of humanity in the fullness of deity. He was the God-man, experiencing all that we do yet without sin, that He might become an acceptable sacrifice for the sins of mankind. Christ lived, preached, taught, performed miracles. He was unjustly accused, tried, convicted, beaten, mocked, spat upon. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. He rose again to new life three days later. He declared of himself, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in his work, Christ accomplished that which no one else could. See this first. He took my place. He stood where I should have, where you should have. Isaiah 53 says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 1 Peter 2, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. He took the place that we should have because of our sins. His death was the way by which we could be reconciled to God. And secondly, see this, he paid my price. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I am redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ spilled for me. My sin debt is paid. My account is paid in full and closed with God because of Christ. The sins that once separated me from God and destined me for punishment eternally in hell are covered forever. I am ransomed from the pit. I am redeemed from destruction. He paid my price. Third, he endured my punishment. 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, Christ's death on my behalf completely satisfied the just wrath that God had against sin. 
His innocent shed blood is sufficient for the sins of all people for all time. Fourth, he removed my guilt. Colossians 2.13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Having forgive us, forgiven us all our trespasses. See, one of the major themes that the, that the Reformation went against was this idea that salvation could be earned. Was that salvation was achieved through some sort of works-based or rituals-based righteousness. If I just did my prayers, if I just did my fasts, if I just did the ritualistic good deeds that I am called to, if I just had enough outward devotion, I could receive forgiveness. What we see clearly in Scripture is Christ alone is the way that we receive forgiveness. Our sins went to the cross with him, were nailed to the tree with him, and died with him. They were ultimately and completely defeated in his resurrection. Our sins are taken as far as the east is from the west, and with those sins go the shame and the guilt. And lastly, he gave me his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Through Jesus' sacrifice, we are justified. That's a legal word. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a bit. But in the eyes of God, the sinlessness of Christ is now credited to us. And while we still struggle against sin in the here and now, the path of righteousness has been laid clearly before us, and the power to walk in it has been given to us through Christ and the Holy Spirit that now indwells those who are His. And listen, we can live with confidence in the finality and the security that comes from the fact that our salvation is in Christ alone. And as those who experience all the benefits of his sacrifice on our behalf, who have been called out of the darkness of our own sins and into the life of him who died, it is our responsibility then to proclaim Christ and him crucified as the only means to save. A plan put in place by the Father out of his abundance of grace toward us, which brings us thirdly to this, that a church founded on the gospel should be defined by sola gratia, that is, grace alone. And we understand God's grace to be his unmerited favor. Around here, we like to say that grace is us getting what we do not deserve. And grace is an extension of God's character. And we see that in Exodus 34, when God passes over Moses, showing him his glory, and he proclaims, the Lord, the Lord, a God, here it is, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God calls himself merciful and gracious. It's a part of who he is. But notice why that comes. It comes in response to human transgression and sin and iniquity. See, God's mercy and grace in our lives is a response to our own sinful rebellion. God poured out grace on Adam and Eve in not just wiping them off the face of the earth when they sinned. God showed grace again and again and again to the people of Israel as they rebelled against him. And in fact, he made a way that their sins might be forgiven through the sacrificial system, which was a precursor, of course, 
the ultimate expression of God's grace, the coming of his own son, Jesus. Titus 2.11, for by the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Jesus Christ embodied God's grace in who he was and what he did. He has made a way for us to no longer be recipients of wrath, no longer be dead in our sins, no longer live without hope of ever seeing salvation. But in the same way that the dead can't raise themselves to new life, our salvation is not of any merit that we bring to the table. It is only of God's working. It is only in His choosing to dispense grace upon us that we can receive salvation. It's only by God raising us to new life through the resurrection of His Son that we can be saved, that we can experience freedom from sin, that we can experience the joy of closeness to him, of blessing in being a part of his church, of hearing, of having our prayers heard and answered, that and so much more. Grace is God's riches poured out and given to us at Christ's expense. We begin to understand grace when we recognize just how undeserving we are. How undeserving we are of anything good from God and our inability to be righteous as required. I think that we can sometimes slip into thinking this false notion that man is inherently good. And that we can somehow in some way do enough good in order to receive salvation. We slip into some sort of pseudo-Christian karma in believing that if I just do ABC, God will give me XYZ. That could not be further from the truth. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Some in this room still may be. Some on the live stream still may be. We were locked in the tomb with no way for us to get out. It's only through God's moving toward us to roll away the stone in our own lives that could bring us from death to life. And God's grace is not something that is achieved or earned it is something that he dispenses of. Romans 3:23 and 24 say for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is the idea that sin is us missing the mark. We can never attain it. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. While we were still sinners, Paul goes on to say a few chapters later, Christ died for us. While we were still the enemies of We had no chance. There was no way we could ever measure up, and the path that we were on led to destruction, but God, out of his grace, shows compassion and love and kindness to make a way that we could be freed from all of that when we don't deserve it, and we now, as those who have received that grace, have the opportunity to dispense it to others. Let the church be the place of grace in this world. Let the church be the beacon of love and grace to a world who desperately needs it. Building upon the foundation of salvation coming through Christ alone, by God's grace alone, we see the fourth defining characteristic of a gospel-centered church, and that is this, sola fide, faith alone. Now, the core of the Reformation was the question, how can someone get right with God? And sola fide stands to answer that question. And while the other four solas have their place most certainly in bringing the church back to the truth of a a gospel-centered church, 
Sola Fide stands to answer this most important question in partnership with Sola Gratia and Solus Christus. It is through faith alone that one gets right with God, but specifically through faith alone that one is justified. So let's start with this first. What is faith? Well, Hebrews 11.1 1 would have us understand that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is so much more than just blind optimism or wishful thinking for something to come. Faith is a confident expectation and assurance that what has not yet been seen but has been promised by God will come about because He has promised it. It is knowing and believing in who God says He is, in what He did through Jesus Christ, and trusting that as He kept His promises for generations, so also He will keep His promises to us. Romans 1.16, for in it... The it there that Paul's talking about is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. To those who have faith, who believe in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, as we've established already, salvation comes. And in that salvation is the idea that we are declared righteous, that we are justified in the eyes of God. We are given a right legal standing before him, given the righteousness of Christ through the work that he has accomplished for us. Romans 3.28 goes on to say it as well, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. There is nothing that you can do works-wise to save. It comes through faith. You've been saved not by good works, not by religious ritual, but instead by grace you have been saved through faith. By faith in Christ and the work on the cross and in the empty tomb, we take part in what has been called the great exchange, the, the receiving of Christ's righteousness as he takes our own sin. Nate Pickowitz, in his very helpful book titled we, Why We're Protestant, says this about it, the great exchange is made by God, a legal declaration whereby he looks at Christ on the cross and declares cursed and looks at the sinner and declares justified. We believe it's not by attending church on a Sunday. It's not by the giving of your tithe. It's not by the serving in whatever area you may serve. It's not in some sort of good moral upstandingness. It's not even through baptism or through the taking of communion that one is saved. Faith is believing that Jesus was who he says he was, God in the flesh, sinless and innocent, but went to the cross and took the punishment I deserved. Faith in believing that he took my sins and I received his righteousness, clearing my debt and paying it in full. Faith in believing that one day he will come to take me home or he will call me to himself and I will spend all of eternity in heaven where I will bask in his glory for all of eternity. Faith in believing that as I live in faith here, trusting in who he is and what he's done, and the work he wants to do in me, submitting to him and his ways, because we, we read in James, faith without works is dead. There is a part of this where we need to be living out the faith that we have. As we put off sin and put on Christ, God will continue his work in me so that he gets all the glory. And that, finally, is the last mark of a church founded on the gospel. That we'd be defined by soli deo gloria, that is, God's glory alone. 
And the concern, of course, in all of this, in talking about salvation being an act of Christ by, God, uh, by God's grace through faith, is that we become lazier, passive in our, in our walk with Christ. I love this phrase. Listen, we're not saved to sit. We are saved to be active in working for the salvation that we have, the faith that we have been called to. And we need to be doing those things in such a way that we glorify God in all that we do. And we understand that God himself is, is, has glory in himself. We call it his intrinsic glory in that he is holy. He is set apart. And we get a chance to get glimpses of that all throughout Scripture and in creation. John Piper says that God's glory is the going public of his holiness, his set-apartness, the fact that he is different altogether. And we understand that God is jealous for his own glory as we read in Isaiah 42 verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. We see God's glory on display in the Old Testament. When he led his people out of Egypt through a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. We see God's glory on display as he met with Moses on Mount Sinai and showed him his glory. And Moses' face shone so brightly he had to wear a veil when he came back down from the mountain. We see God's glory in other places, in in, in the the, the visions that he gave to Isaiah and, and so many others. But again, the ultimate display of God's glory comes to us in Jesus Christ. As the very fullness of God in human form, the miracles he performed, the things that he taught, the way he lived was a display of God's glory. The transfiguration of Matthew 17 when he went up to the mountain and his glory shone. But even Jesus here on earth did not live to glorify himself, as he says in John 8. This is verse 54, I glorify, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. And for those who have heard what Scripture says, who have been saved through Christ as an extension of God's grace by faith, as those with the indwelling Holy Spirit as a result, the reality for us is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, for you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You understand what was given up for you? You appreciate what Christ went through on your behalf? You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We're called not simply to just acknowledge the grace of God. We are called to live our life, or the glory of God. We are called to live our lives for the glory of God. Live our lives in such a way that, that we may glorify him in all we do and cause others to do so as well. In all aspects of who we are, we should be living to magnify him above ourselves and above every other in our workplaces, in our schools, at our homes, in our marriages, in our friendships, in the midst of joy and blessing, in the midst of trial and hardship. The pursuit of the glory of God should be first first and foremost in all that we do. I love the clarity and summary in the first answer of the Westminster Catechism, which states man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Is it for you? Is that your desire? To show the world the holiness of God? To point in every way to Him? Do you spend your time considering His glory and the descriptions we have of it? 
Does it cause you to stop in your tracks? Does your worship reflect an adequate view of the glory of God intrinsic in himself? Do your actions and priorities reveal the desire to bring increasing measures of glory to the Father? Is this what your eyes are fixed on? Seeing and emulating the holiness of God? Does what happens in your home glorify Him? You see, God is not glorified in the distracted or in the half-hearted. God is glorified in the pursuit of His glory alone in all that we do. At the end of the day, the Reformation was a move away from the man-centric, empty religion that the church had fallen into and back to the God-glorifying, the Christ-exalting, the Spirit-fueled, the expressions of true Christianity that the Scriptures prescribe. But the reality is the battles waged by the Reformers 500 years ago did not end there. In fact, they were waged in every single generation since, and such most certainly is the case today. As we reflect on these truths and the reality of where we may be at personally, consider where we may be at corporately. We should embrace the idea behind the phrase, semper reformanda, which is always reforming. Not just changing for the sake of change. But when we may sense that we are taking control. Or when we are sinfully trusting ourselves. We must come back to the truths that we see in scripture. That we saw established so many years ago. We must come back to embrace solely scriptura. The final authority of God's word. We must trust solus Christus, fixing our eyes completely on Christ. We must humbly accept sola gratia, elevating the will of God above our own. And we must live with sola fide, exalting the saving work of Christ and diminishing our own self-righteousness. And finally, to live with the words of Romans 11.36 on our hearts at all times. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Soli Deo Gloria. Amen. Let me pray for us. God Almighty, you are building your church. And Jesus, you told us the gates of hell will not even prevail against it. God, we want to be that church. We want to be that people. We want to be so firmly founded on the truths of Scripture as the final authority in all places. So cause us and call us to live in this book to live by the life-giving and life-transforming words that we have in our hands. God, we long to be a people who look only to Jesus as the object of our salvation. 
transform us and, and mold us more into his image as we grow in our understanding of what he endured for us. God, we long to be a people who live by your grace alone, who understand that there is no way that we could have merited any favor from you and yet you saw fit to bestow it anyway. God, thank you for your kindness and goodness and love and grace and mercy in our lives. Would we be people who live that out toward others as well? God, would we be a people in a church of faith, understanding that it's only through a trust in you, a believing and a calling upon the name of Jesus Christ that we can be saved, that we can be declared righteous in your sight. Help us to live that out, trusting you in all ways to call others to the same. God, most of all, we want you to be glorified. So make that the chief end of every person who calls this church home, of every person who's called in the name of Jesus Christ and who has been saved. God, grant us the opportunity to glorify you all the more and receive all the praise and the glory for everything. Thank you, God, for this time, and we humbly ask that you would do what you want to do in our midst, in our lives, in this church. It's all for your glory, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.